Hello and welcome to Beta Cells to Bicycles, the official podcast of the BC Diabetes Research Network. I'm Krista Lamb and today I'm talking to Dr. Jim Johnson. Dr. Johnson is a professor in the Department of Cellular and Physiological Sciences and Surgery at the University of British Columbia, and he works in the areas of insulin resistance and personalized nutrition, among many others. Welcome, Dr. Johnson. Thanks for having me on, Krista. So your work is really interesting in that you're looking at diabetes from a very basic physiological level and trying to determine things that we can change um, to help people's diabetes risk through the lifespan. So I'm really interested in learning a little bit more about your work. And so can you tell me a little bit about what it is that drew you to diabetes as a research topic? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, basically, I've, to be honest, I've always, um, ever since my university degree in, in kinesiology, I've been interested in how the body works. And of course, when you're interested in how the body works, you're also interested in how it doesn't work sometimes uh, under various different uh, uh, disease conditions and chronic disease conditions. And, uh, you know, a particular subset of diabetes research that's always fascinated me is understanding uh, the cells that make insulin, the insulin-secreting pancreatic beta cells, and how they function, how they dysfunction in diabetes, and then the consequences of the dysfunction of the pancreatic beta cells. And the lab is, as you mentioned, really quite varied. We've got people who are trying to get at the very, very tiny details, intimate um, uh, you know, really intricate details of, uh, of beta cell biology, how the beta cells respond to stress, how the beta cells secrete insulin, exactly what happens. And then there's other folks in the lab who are interested in what happens uh, when maybe the beta cells secrete too much insulin, how that might affect heart disease, uh, cancer risk, and uh, obesity, and Alzheimer's disease, and a variety of things like that. So I find that having a a really multidisciplinary approach uh, helps me think of these things in, in unique ways. And I think it's really interesting when you talk about beta cells because a lot of people think that beta cells are sort of the key to solving the diabetes puzzle because we know that beta cell dysfunction or your beta cells simply not working are things that can lead to type 1 or type 2 diabetes. And so can you tell me a little bit about what we're where we're at because we've talked a little bit in the past, you and I, about beta cells and creating beta cells in the lab and all of these things that we're, we're looking at and are we any closer? Yeah, so I think I'll start with the first part of that question. So it's true that uh, in, in 2019 the beta cells have really come uh, front and central in, in both type 2 diabetes and type 1 diabetes but it actually wasn't always that way and I remember back when I was a postdoc uh, and then looking for jobs you know 15, 16 years ago Actually, the beta cell wasn't studied very much at all. In type 1 diabetes, the, uh, the, the general thought was that all the beta cells were gone, so they weren't important. And in type 2 diabetes, um, because there was ample insulin, and we now know that there was too much insulin, so hyperinsulinemia, people assumed the beta cells, not only were they still there, but they were working fine, they were working better than fine. So there's actually been an interesting shift in how we think about the beta cell and how we think about beta cell dysfunction that's that's happened over the last 15 to 20 years, 10 years even. And now we understand it, that in type 1 diabetes, for example, people living with type 1 diabetes actually do have some beta cells. It's not enough to manage their uh, blood sugars, but they are there. And so that gives us a bit of hope for attempts to sort of preserve them during the early stages of type 1 diabetes. It gives us uh, hope for potentially ways to uh, regenerate or regrow them, although there's always questions around safety whenever you're 
putting growth factors in and around the pancreas. And then of course, as you're alluding to, in type 1 diabetes, there's tremendous interest in trying to replace the beta cells. And I've been fortunate enough to be involved in some, some of the key studies showing that um, from embryonic stem cells, you can create a cell that it's not a beta cell yet, but it, uh, it makes insulin uh, and it can secrete insulin in response to glucose. Not, again, well as well as a, as a proper beta cell, but um, quite encouraged by how far uh, we've come in, yeah, in 10 or 15 years. You go from the idea that regenerating or, or making beta cells in the lab essentially was science fiction uh, 15 years ago, and now um, they're able to make at least the precursors to beta cells in the lab. And as you've probably heard already, there are ongoing, the very, very first ongoing uh, clinical trials to just show that, that these are safe and they don't show efficacy yet, uh, so it's. I always caution people that um, the beta cell replacement field is still very much early days. We always have to be very careful not to get caught up in the hype. But if you look back in time and think about, you know, where we were even five years ago, where you could make a cell that made insulin but it didn't respond at all to glucose as if it, as if it was, uh, uh, you know, dead essentially. And now we're um, starting to get a little bit of response to glucose and, and it does raise some hope, but I'm, I'm always very cautious with, with folks not to, uh, you'll never uh, catch me putting a date on these things. It's, it's gonna take some time. Yeah, and I think that that's wise because one of the things that we know is that, you know, for years we've been talking about when a cure will happen, but I think that for anyone that is living with type one or type two diabetes, that's something that you know may not happen in their lifetime so that's something to keep in yeah, mind. Yeah, you never know. I mean, a um, hundred years ago today, insulin was being discovered. So whenever 102 years ago today, uh, diabetes was a, a death sentence and it would take a few weeks, ravage through your body and you'd die as a child. And uh, you couldn't have predicted how, how quickly and how well uh, the discovery of insulin would, would change people's lives, uh, changing it from an acutely fatal disease to a chronic, very serious long-term disease. So you never know when the next uh, major um, step increment will come up. But I can say that uh, we're always moving forward. Um, and you know, when you talk uh, to patients and their families, uh, kids especially, it really breaks my heart to talk to, for example, a 15-year-old who was told when they were 10 that the cure uh, was three years away. And uh, you know, some unscrupulous um, scientist uh, or, or someone, a clinician or whoever, you know, that's giving those dates. I mean, it's more about fundraising sometimes. Uh, you, people want projections. We live in a world uh, where we tend to think about engineering more than we think about uh, discovery. Um, it's actually easier to extrapolate in the engineering world. You know, you can build a taller skyscraper because you know how long it took to build the shorter ones. You can build a bridge, you, you understand that. But we still, in the case of both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, have major knowledge gaps with regards to what's actually the, you know, the molecular defects. And we don't know when we will make those breakthroughs and, and gain that new insight that could just uh, in a moment help change 
the way we see things. Yeah, and I mean, in the meantime, there have been some incredible advances, as you mentioned before, and so many things that are happening that have improved on the the treatment of diabetes. And so in those ways, things continue to move forward. So it's just very smart not to put a, uh, a date on it. And uh, so one of the- Not that you asked. Not that I asked. But I, but I, <laughs> I, like, I like to remind people um, preemptively that it's, it, you know, we're always hopeful. I am an optimist. Yes. Uh, but also we're always realistic. Right. And I think that's a wise, wise thing to be. Um, so we also wanted to talk a little bit today about um, insulin resistance, because mm-hmm. that's another area where you have had a lot of innovative things come through your lab in terms of looking at insulin resistance. And it's partly through beta cell, um, but also can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So insulin resistance is is... Unfortunately, a very vague concept, and it's um, again we I talked a little bit about the history of diabetes research. Uh, 10, 20 years ago, in type two diabetes, uh, insulin resistance really ruled ruled the roost, and uh, people would tell you that the cause of insulin resist uh, cause of type two diabetes, the proximal, the primary cause was insulin resistance. We know it's a contributor, but what really uh, changed the game in that regard, and again, it was. You don't know when these things are going to happen, but about, I guess, 10, maybe 10, 15 years ago, the very first genome-wide association uh, studies came out um, for, for diabetes. And uh, it was a surprise to many people, but the majority of the genes that are associated with the genetic risk, the common genetic risk of type 2 diabetes, are not insulin-resistant genes. They weren't in the muscle or, or having their effect in, in these insulin target tissues. So we know much of the cause has to be outside of the insulin resistance. But insulin resistance is probably a major area by which the environment, um, whether it's uh, food that we eat or stress, so a major inducer of insulin resistance is, is, um, are your stress hormones. There are all these different uh, things that can impinge and make it harder for the body to use insulin. And I guess the uh, contribution we've made to the field, and this gets a little bit complicated, is understanding. So the uh, dogmatic, the traditional way of thinking is that there was insulin resistance in target tissues like the muscle, the liver, uh, maybe a little bit in the fat, and that the beta cells would make more insulin uh, to compensate for this. And that was this hyperinsulinemia that I mentioned before is, is uh, typically seen in type 2 diabetes. But what we have found, and actually we really refound it because there's about a 20 or 30 year old literature that had established this before, uh, before it sort of went in a different direction, but that the hyperinsulinemia itself can cause insulin resistance. So here you have this vicious cycle where the tissues don't uh, use insulin as efficiently, um, so that's insulin resistance, or one way of thinking about it. So the beta cells make more insulin, and then that insulin desensitizes, and, and at this meeting we've shown directly at the level of the receptor how it does that. It desensitizes, it sort of turns down the receptors for insulin, which then causes this vicious cycle. So we know that type 2 diabetes, and to some extent type 1 diabetes, are these these vicious cycles that, uh, that get kicked off. So normal physiology um, just goes beyond the normal range. Probably some degree 
of insulin resistance is found in all healthy people, and that's a way of, of dealing with normal fluctuations in, in insulin and, and, and glucose metabolism. metabolism. It's only when it goes sort of an out of control um, feedback or uh, you know, vicious cycle that we have problems. And I wonder, I know you also do some work in personalized nutrition um, in sort of looking at that. And does that tie into insulin resistance or are those completely separate issues? No, it's, everything's connected. So that's, uh, that's a really great question. So one of the things, so mechanistically, we, we use our models in the lab to try to understand uh, what causes obesity and what causes type 2 diabetes and what causes type 1 diabetes. But the models are themselves all unique. And one thing that we know for certain, and we know this from a genetic standpoint, and we know this from the environmental stress standpoint, we know that each person's diabetes, whether it's type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes, is really unique to them. And uh, for example, uh, some of our genetics colleagues now say that there are five or six types, genetic types, of type 2 diabetes. You know, type 2 A, B, C, D, and E. And and you arrive at the same uh, diagnosis and that you arrive at the same disease state. But how you get there, whether you get there from having more insulin resistance and it's less of the beta cells failing or more beta cell failure and the insulin resistance is really not that important, whether it comes primarily from a, a genetic uh, predisposition, you've been dealt uh, the bad card at, at uh, 100 different genes, <laughs> or whether you were dealt all the good cards, um, but your environment and your, and your um, lifestyle are, 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 are so uh, misfitting for your physiology that it uh, overcomes your good genes. So this entire sort of spectrum of options, and to, to some extent this is going to be the same case in type 1 diabetes. It's a little bit more monolithic in that the immune system is, uh, uh, seeks out for reasons we don't still understand seeks out and attacks and kills uh, many of your own beta cells. Um, but there again are uh, probably uh, varieties of type 1 diabetes. There's probably uh, some people with type 1 diabetes for whom you know the, the pathway to get there is different and then potentially the ways of treating it would be different. And so we've started in 2016 with uh, Sean McKelvey, who's, who's here at this meeting as well, uh, we started the Institute for Personalized Therapeutic Nutrition. I want to make sure everybody knows we don't, it's an aspiration. We, um, we're still building the data in order to be able to, for example, uh, hopefully genetically uh, find, okay, this diet would work good for you or that diet would work good for you. Um, we're not there yet. We're doing the basic research we need to do to understand how different people and how different people's beta cells respond to different diets, for example. Uh, but we know that um, a big outcome of, of our work and of work from others, we finally know, and this is a sea change as well, that type 2 diabetes is much more reversible than we used to think. So people were trained in medical school that is progressively, um, that's a progressive disease. You, you have early stage, you take uh, certain type of drugs, maybe these oral drugs, then you progress and then you're on insulin and you progress and you're on more insulin, then you progress and you're on insulin plus something else. Uh, we now know, really thanks to some incredibly innovative uh, studies, both uh, reducing the amount of food intake, such as the direct trial out of the UK, 
and changing the macronutrient ratio. Uh, this includes the VERTA trial, which is a low carbohydrate trial out of the US. And we have some of our own trials that we're doing that are uh, validating uh, some of those previous results. But we now know, quite surprisingly to me actually, that if people can adhere to these, uh, some of these different types of diets, and it probably won't be for everyone, but that their type 2 diabetes can be reversed or remissed or whatever term you want to use, uh, but many, many people are finding they can go off of their drugs. And, the, and that is something that is a, also a sea change. And we really have to think about, rethink what we thought about type 2 diabetes. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly uh, an interesting thing to think about in terms of, you know, if there are things that will work for some people. But I mean, I think the thing that you're pointing out is that what may work for one person might not work for another person. So we're really still in the infancy stage of trying to figure all of that out. Or we are. Maybe we are. Toddler? So this is why, yeah, toddler. I'd say you know it's possible. You know it can work. You know, I don't envy my um, clinical colleagues. Uh, they make these tough uh, decisions. But, and the truth is, they have, there's an evidence base of things that can work, but unfortunately today, uh, I mean, it's still trial and error. So people will try with their patients, try this, okay, that didn't work, try this, okay, that didn't work, and then try this, oh, that worked. And maybe it works for a while and then it doesn't work. So there's always going to be trial and error in medicine. Again, I'm, I'm uh, uh, happy that I don't have to do those, make those decisions myself. Um, but what we're hoping to do at the IPTN um, over the next uh, years, uh, maybe decades, we don't know how long it will take, as I said before, uh, but we would like to build a knowledge base where uh, patients and clinicians and their support teams can make educated guesses, either based on their existing lifestyle, their environmental stressors, their genetics, their epigenetics, all these sorts of things where we can put this all together in some type of algorithm and help uh, the clinician and the patient make an educated guess of what uh, type of, of diet, what type of support, what type of uh, drugs, if required, would be best for managing their diabetes. And I think this is something that we're starting to think of in type 1 diabetes. So of course, um, it's very important to understand that you can't cure type 1 diabetes with diet. You know, there's, uh, it's absolute malpractice to uh, suggest this and people have, have suggested these things on the, the internet. But that doesn't mean that while uh, treating with insulin, that uh, there aren't many people now who are better managing their type 1 diabetes by, um, by adjusting uh, what they eat, how they eat, when they eat. There's so many factors. And I think the real, uh, you know, the power of, for example, continuous glucose monitoring allows the patient to see what's happening in real time. Uh, the powers of pumps and, and eventually uh, the commercial closed loops. Of course, they're the loopers who are already doing it themselves. But uh, you know, we now know that type 1 diabetes, there's, there's, again, there's beta cells in there that are trying to help a little bit. And if we can be a little bit easier on them, if we can reduce, for example, in some people, reducing the carbohydrate load that people are taking in means that they might need less insulin, which means they might have fewer hypoglycemias uh, episodes. So, again, this is early days, um, but, and at the type 1, it's even earlier days. You have 
you know, uncontrolled trials, you've got anecdotes, you've got uh, large uh, sets of anecdotes, um, which is uh, starting to happen, but that's how science works. And then I'm, I would love for, uh, for JDRF, for example, to, um, to fund an, an early stage intervention trial. And for a long time, people didn't want to talk about uh, nutrition and type 1 diabetes, but the biology is the biology. Uh, they also didn't, a lot of people don't want to talk about genetics and beta cell biology and type 2 diabetes. They just say, oh, it's, it's so simple, you know, just eat less and, and run around the block. But we know it's not simple. We live in a very complex society, and um, if it was so simple, it wouldn't be one of the world's most pressing healthcare issues. Absolutely. And so one of the other things I wanted to ask you about is being part of the BC Diabetes Research Network, that must be an interesting thing for you because it brings together clinicians and healthcare providers and scientists and everybody in this sort of network. And how have you found that in terms of helping out with your work? Yeah, the BC Diabetes Research Network has been amazing. Um, the people were all around, but it does take that greasing of the wheels. It takes events like this. It takes um, the networking. It takes it, it. It helps to bring people together, and you know, uh, Bruce for share and the other sort of leadership of of that uh, team have done an amazing job, and um, it's essentially that. It's been it's really transformational. I think it's very important that. Um, the people in the lab get to meet with uh, clinicians and see and, and think about the clinical problems. You know, often we're, as academics, we're hiding in our, our ivory towers trying to figure out which signal transduction pathway is attached to which other one and what phosphorylation site of which protein is where. But it really helps to meet clinicians, it helps to meet patients, their families, uh, to put everything in perspective. Equally, I think it's very important that clinicians meet basic scientists because we often think about the physiological problems from first principles and unfortunately the medical school curriculum I mean some some of these folks went to medical school a while ago uh, but it's not it's never as up-to-date as the the literature and it's inherently risk-adverse you know you and so are guidelines and so is clinical practice and you know Academic uh, basic researchers are, uh, at least I think the good ones are not risk adverse. They're willing to take an, a 50 year old idea and ask, you know, how do we really know that that's uh, the order of causality or how do we really know that that's how it works? And so I think it helps um, the clinical scientists and the clinicians and, and the patients as well to, to take, take a bit of risk and think, okay, what if I looked at this question out of the box or upside down or whatnot. And so I think the, the sharing of, of not just knowledge, um, but uh, cultures and intellectual approaches is extremely helpful. And I think that's, uh, that's a really wonderful note to end on. So thank you so much for joining me on the show today. You have been listening to Beta Cells to Bicycles, a podcast from the BC Diabetes Research Network. If you'd like more information on the network, visit diabetesbc.ca. And if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.